So, I want to talk to you tonight about the cross, resurrection, and Pentecost, but not as a doctrine, not as a something we believe in, but as something that fundamentally shifts the way we see our entire world. The cross, resurrection, and Pentecost should not be something that's simply a bullet point on a pamphlet, but rather an eventual thing that fundamentally shifts the way we see everything that happens after that. Now, uh, uh, so this shouldn't surprise anybody, but the cross, when it happened, was surprising. Uh, nobody who followed Jesus thought he was going to die. They thought he was going to take over Rome. So, so when Rome succeeded in crucifying him, that was surprising. What was more surprising was resurrection. That was really, really surprising, right? Because in their experiences, dead people stay dead, right? Um, it's actually interesting that the, the Hebrew root word uh, for resurrection and the Hebrew root word for surprise, they share the same root. And that makes sense. If I died tonight, you came to my funeral on Wednesday and I showed up here next Sunday, surprise sort of cuts it. <clears throat> so, so what happened is, is that the New Testament writers uh, started exploring the meanings of the cross. And, and, and the cross is one of those things that doesn't have a meaning. Uh, the cross doesn't the cross doesn't have one meaning. Like, I, like, I, I could preach 40 different messages on the cross of Jesus Christ and never repeat them and never be wrong. Does that make sense? Like, like, like the cross isn't something that gives us meaning. The cross is something is, that defies meaning. For, 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 for God to humble himself, put on flesh, and allow himself to be executed at the hands of a local government for the good of all humanity is not something that has one meaning. It is something that redefines what meaning is for everything else. Uh, God is not that which gives us meaning. God is that which is present in what we think meaning is while it gets obliterated and rebuilt. That's, that's the idea. So you, you uh, whew, I'm going to write that one down. That's, the, uh, that's pretty good. So, the, um, it, it, so when they, they started examining what does the cross mean, they, they came up with things like this. The cross is like the cancellation of debt. It, it's like you owed God and then you didn't. And, and, and that's called forgiveness. And we'll, cel- well, let's celebrate that, right? We embrace that. Then another place it says, the cross is like the in-your-face confrontation to slavery. Like, you, you, you're not just forgiven, you're supposed to be set free, right? And we say, okay, yes. And then another place it's called this. Oh, another place it, it, it says that the cross proves that God does not watch our suffering, but rather engages it. Well, that, that, well yeah, absolutely, we, we embrace that. But, but here's one part of the cross that I don't think gets enough playtime, and I'd like, to, um, I'd like to examine that one. And it's not because the others aren't important, and I embrace all of them. Matter of fact, if you go out to my table and say, give me all your messages on the cross, I'll pick them out for you. There's probably 30 of them. Um, but, but when you only got one moment at one time, you got to sort of, you know, pick one. And, and this is one that I, you know, I'm convinced just doesn't get enough playtime, so I want to examine it. All right, so here we go. Hang on. I love that. Oh, don't worry. Don't you worry. Shine like stars. This is, uh, you are awesome. So, so, so the cross has all these different meanings, right? And so we want to embrace each and every one of them. But the, I, uh, I was running out of material. Here we go. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so by making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In this context, 
Paul is saying that one of the meanings of the cross should be the end of hostility and peacemaking between people. The idea is, is that if God has done all the work to make peace between us and him, at bare minimum, our response should be to make peace with each other. There should not be hostility this way, because no matter what we disagree on, if we back out far enough, we're going to find that both of our hands are wrapped around the foot of the same cross, and that should be enough to create one shared humanity. The idea is that the cross is the end of hostility. Now, Jesus hints around at this in very blunt language. Watch, this is his first sermon, I think third sentence. Watch this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Ooh. Really? Is Jesus tying whether or not we're a son of God or not to our basic disposition in conflict? Now, I don't even want to begin to unpack all the theological implications of that because it's not my point tonight. But just, can we back off to something that is obvious? And let's say it this way. Our basic disposition in conflict with each other is incredibly important to Jesus. Our basic disposition when we're in conflict is really, really important to Jesus. And unless you think that was one isolated scripture... 34 verses later in the same sermon, he says basically the same thing a different way. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Once again, our basic disposition when someone's coming against us is tied to this idea of children of God, sons of God. To Jesus, the cross is not something to be believed in. The cross is something that fundamentally shifts the way we see everything else after it. And part of that is, is because of God's work on the cross, we should be at peace with one another. No matter how big the disagreement, all of our hands are around the foot of the same cross, and that should unite us, thereby killing the hostility. Now, to understand how this works, we've got to understand two things. One, how does hostility work? And two, how does peacemaking work? Now, there's a great story in the Old Testament that illustrates how hostility works. It's quite long, so I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to read a couple lines from it. I'll tell the story. I'll tell it well. You'll be very familiar with it. It's the story of Samson. Now, Samson was a bit of a lunatic. He was a rebellious, selfish, self-centered, um, egotistical, narcissist maniac, actually. Um, if you read his story, he had no regard for the law, no regard for the rules, no regard for his parents, no regard for basic dignity, no regard for kosherness, no regard for anything like that. And what, what happens is, is, is and, and he had a big anger problem. Uh, he was a massive overreactor. We'll talk about that in a second. So, so he falls in, here's the basic of the story. He falls in love with a Philistine woman. And, and I love this about the Bible. Sometimes the Bible tells you great stories that you want to be like. Sometimes the Bible includes stories, and they're like, you don't want to be like that guy. Samson's one of those stories. Jonah is one of those stories. Jonah's a guy that in the entire book never did one thing God wanted him to do. And he got his own book. I don't know. Anyway, it's weird. He didn't do one thing God asked him to do with the right heart. And he ends up sitting outside mad that his five-word sermon worked. God wants him to preach to the Ninevites. He doesn't want to go. He ends up going, preaches the shortest sermon ever. It takes eight words in English, five words in Hebrew. Forty days from now, you're going to be destroyed. See you later. 
goes off and it works. Everybody repents. And then he's upset that the altar call was so big. You just don't want to be like that guy. Samson's like that too. So Samson falls in love with this Philistine woman. He tells his parents. His parents beg with him, please don't. Please, she worships other gods. Please, please don't do this. He said, ah, I'm in love with her. Shut up, right? And then he sneaks out of his house one night to go visit her. And evidently he runs into a lion. Which, look, if you're sneaking out of your house at night behind your parents' back, running into a lion is a great way to get caught. Evidently, he was skilled enough to kill the lion, goes to Caesar, comes back, and on his way back to see her another time, evidently bees had taken nest in the lion's carcass. And then with no regard for rules or law or the Bible or Scripture or basic hygiene, he reaches into the dead carcass to get food. This was against everything. Then he goes and sits with her, with her family, and it hits him. I need to prove to her family that I'm smarter than them. So here's what he does. He says, I bet I could tell you a riddle that you can't figure out. They say, deal. He said, tell you what, I'll even give you seven days to figure it out. And if you figure it out, I'll owe you 30 pieces of clothes. If you can't, you owe me 30 pieces of clothes. They say, deal. Now, they're never going to be able to figure this out. Why? Because he just made it up off the top of his head. Nobody else saw what he saw. So he says, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. I bet you can't guess that. Of course they can't. He just made it up. So seven days go by, and they can't do it. So what they do is they approach his fiance, which was their sister. And they say, you need to do whatever you need to do to get him to tell you so that you can tell us. So she goes, and she uses whatever female wiles that she has to get him to talk. It doesn't go into detail, but I'm thinking it had something to do with fate. Anyhow, <laughs> he tells her. She, of course, tells them. And on the last second, they guess it. So the last second, they go, oh, we got this. What is stronger than a lion? What is sweeter than honey? And if you're, looking, if you're one of these people who are looking for a life verse, here it is. Direct quote out of the Bible. Here's what Samson says. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have never gotten that answer. <laughs> Hand on heart is exactly what it says. And, and so anyway, anyway, he now owes them 30 pieces of clothes. Instead of admitting they got him and going down to the TK Maxx and buying 30 pieces of clothes, he kills 30 of their family members, strips them naked, brings their clothes and says, I owed you 30 clothes. I've just killed your family members. Now you got your 30 clothes. Massive overreaction. This guy would never be asked to preach at any stage on earth today. You imagine that? Welcome, Samson. He uh, lost a bet once and killed 30 people. Look, if you lose a bet and your basic reaction is to kill 30 people, that is out of control, right? They respond, they respond by, by giving his wife to somebody else. And then they offer him a younger sister. You didn't want to be a woman back then, right? The, they had no say in this, right? He then responds by tying foxes together and setting all of their crops on fire, which is ruining a nation's economy for an entire year. They then respond by burning an entire family of people to death. He then responds by picking up the jawbone of a donkey and killing a thousand of them. They then respond by trapping him, blinding him, and enslaving him. He then responds by pulling an entire building down on them. So, 
what started as a joke that no one understood escalates into everybody dying. It's called escalation. What starts as a joke no one got because he just made it up ended up with 30 people dying, an entire family being burned to death, crops being burned to the ground, a thousand people dying, a guy being enslaved and blinded, and then ultimately everybody dies. That's called the hostility cycle. Now, if you're here and you're married, you understand this. <laughs> this is how it works. Have you ever been in an argument with your spouse that started out over how to cut a tomato? You know, my mom cuts it different. Why ain't your mama? Right, so, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. It starts out over how to cut a tomato and ends up with insults about the other person's mother. Now, sometimes you insult your mother-in-law because she's insultable. But sometimes it's just basic escalation. So there, there is a hostility cycle. And there's a moralization in it. Let, let me show you a few lines from this because I, I, I want you to really understand how hostility works. Here, here's here's, here's uh, Judges 15. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. And Samson said to them, this is the line I want you to get here. This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really do them harm. This time I have a right. Why do you have a right? You killed 30 of them. They took your wife. Aren't you even now? No, no. This time I have a right. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. It's called the moralization of violence. According to the Australian Bureau of Criminal Statistics, 91% of all murders in Australia are morality-based. In other words, just somebody coming in and stabbing someone, very, very rare. It's always, why did you kill that person? Well, if you knew what they did to me, you'd understand they deserved it. It's that kind of idea. Since you did this, now I will be innocent in what I do to you. I'll have no responsibility for that. It, it happens again. Watch this. Then the Philistines said, who's done this? Samson, the son of the Timnite, because he's taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Massive overreaction. And Samson said to them, if this, watch this line. If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And then after that, I'll quit. In other words, the hostility cycle says, once I get up on you, then I'll stop. But if everybody thought that way, it never, ever stops. The hostility cycle never ends. It never ends unless you intentionally enter into a peacemaking cycle. So here's how the hostility cycle works. Here we go. One, there's an offense, right? So somebody does something offensive. My mother doesn't cut tomatoes like that, something like that, right? Two, you dehumanize the adversary. This time I have a right to get even with you. You plowed with my heifer, I'm going to kill 30 of your family members. Okay, now we're even. Nope, nope, then it's this and that. Then there's unwillingness to take responsibility for our part. Uh, at no point in this story does Samson go, you know what, I probably should have stopped. At no point. At no point in the story do the Philistines go, we probably, you know what, burning a whole family probably, what? No, no, no. Both people thought they were innocent in regard to hurting the other because the other hurt them. That's how hostility works. Then there's escalation. So one thing leads to another. A joke no one understands ends up with everybody dying. That's escalation. Then there's holding the other person responsible for the escalation. Since you've acted like this, 
Now I'm going to do something to you. And by the way, when I do it, I'll be innocent. And then there's a failure to learn, which, which leads to repeating the pattern. So then one thing leads to another. Leads to another. That's the hostility cycle. Which leads me to this question. If that's the hostility cycle, how do you make peace? A couple of observations about that. One, the cross wasn't solely about forgiveness and freedom, but also an end to hostility. That the cross was a physical manifestation of a new way to live. The most loving person acts first to end the hostility. That's how Romans, the Paul in the book of Romans, that's how he frames the cross. He says that while you were still hostile to God, God acted first to end the hostility. In other words, God was not the person escalating the violence. God was the person acting first in humility to end the hostility. And if God acted that way towards us, then we should be acting that way towards others. There's so many examples of this, but we could start really basically with your marriages, right? And don't answer out loud. I'm just, this is a very applicable thing. Is Is there a place in your marriage right now that both of you are privately and secretly torturing the other person? Like, like you're, you're, you're at, you're, it's not, it's not overt. It's, you're isolating and refusing to speak or something else, right? You're keeping your feet covered, something, right? So in, in, in some way, I mean, this is what happens. In some way, we're making the other person suffer and we actually think we're justified in that. At some point, though, the most mature one of you has to end the hostility cycle and, and start the peacemaking cycle. Or maybe it's going on at work. Maybe there's that coworker you're making them privately pay right now for something they did a long time ago. And then, but, but see, if they're making you privately pay, neither one of you realize it, but the whole thing is escalating the, the incorrect direction. That's not the life that Jesus uh, died for us to live. Jesus died for us to be so inspired by his love that we would be the people who end the hostility cycle first. Uh, I've done over 3,000 hours of supervised marriage and sex counseling. Uh, I've done however many thousands of hours past that. And, and, I, and I can tell you, the number of times I've been asked, when I pointed out this is a hostility cycle, the number of times I've been asked, well, who moves first? Somebody's got to move. Who moves first? And the answer to that is the one who's most mature. Whoever's the most mature will always be the one who moves first. And it's amazing, when you make a competition out of who's the most mature, then they start fighting over who's going to act first. But, but it's, it's, that, it's, it's that idea. Maybe there's something going on in church right now. And there's this, there's this hostility cycle that's either overt or covert. And actually, it's very uncompelling to the outside world. Um, let me illustrate this. Let, let's say it this way, and then I'll, I'll tell you an illustration. That, 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 that peacemaking is not passive. It's charging in with a different way and changing lives. Peacemaking is not sitting back and just taking it. Peacemaking is being intentional about ending hostility. Uh, let me illustrate this. This is a, a true story that happened to me. It was very, it was, this story is very moving, at least it was to me, and I hope it w- will be to you. I, 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 I got the opportunity years ago, 2014, I want to say, or 2013, I got the opportunity uh, to go to Israel and be privately mentored for three days by a top history expert there. Um, and uh, I took the opportunity. Um, I, w- I was in London. I went there 14 hours a day. Um, he does academic tours. He doesn't do tourist tours. And he, he, ta- he took me around for 14 hours a day and taught me history. And uh, he's an amazing guy, amazing. And, and day one, day one, first two hours, he said something to me and pointed something out that I thought was amazing. Like, amazing. Now, 
he is, uh, he speaks English, he speaks English well, but it's not his first language. You're English speakers primarily. Let me show you what I did, and you'll understand that I was amazed. He said something that was amazing, I'd never thought of it before, and I went, really? Really? Come on. Now, he thought I wanted to fight, that I was disagreeing with him. Here is the top history expert in Jerusalem, and we're in Jerusalem, talking about Jerusalem history, and he thought I was disagreeing with him, and this was his response. Oh, shame. Peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong, let it be me. Well, I was confused, which made it worse. Because my response to that was, what? He said again, oh, shame. Peace between us is the most important thing. If an outsider looks at our conversation, let Jesus be glorified. If one of us needs to be wrong, let it be me. We need peace more than I need to be right about anything. Here's a guy that could have decimated me in an argument. And he's, that's peacemaking. That's peacemaking. I, I, said, I said, Ari, did you think I was arguing with you? He said, weren't you? And I said, okay, first... I humbly apologize for my tone of voice, making you think that. Would you please forgive me? That's first. Second, we're in your country, bro. You're the expert. So let's just get this straight. For the next three days, if I disagree with you, it's me. <laughs> that's second. That, that's second. Third, I just want you to know, that insight was amazing. I was amazed. I was exclaiming amazement in a question. And he went, were you amazed? I said, Ari, I was amazed, man. He went, oh, oh, good. Because I knew I was right about that. But I, I, I just, uh, peace between us. He said, but Shane, the world needs to see us at peace more than I need to be right. And I thought, I've never forgotten that. I'll, ne I'll, be, I'll be 107 one day, and, and I'll still... I'll still remember that moment. Um, so, so, so how do we peacemake? How can I put into language what Ari just showed us? I, I, Jesus, if I can go back and show you this. Um, so this is Jesus in Matthew 5, 43. Uh, don't just love your neighbor and, ha and hate your enemy, but, but love your enemies and pray for those as well, right? That you may be sons of God. See that on the right? It's verse 43. Uh, a few verses before that, he gives a three-step process of what it looks like to peacemake. And, and I, I just want to show you that. So that's verse 43. Here's verse 37, I think. Watch this. 39, excuse me. So this is four verses before. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So Jesus says, if you want to know what peacemaking is like, peacemaking is when you turn the other cheek. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek. Which leads me to all kinds of questions like, does that work? 
Are we really meant to just do that? Now, to understand this, we have to understand first century Roman class systems. So there was a nine-layered class system in the Roman Empire. If you want a great read on this, you can read Richard Rohr's book, The Sermon on the Mount. He does a great exegesis of the nine-layered class system in the Roman Empire. And, and what would happen is, basically, is if I was class one and you were class one and I needed to challenge you, I would slap you with my right hand because that was our clean hand. But if I was class one and you were class eight, I would never slap you with my right hand. I would slap you with my left because it was my unclean hand. It's the, it's the hand I wipe my bum with. Essentially, you're not worth my clean hand. I'm going to slap you with my poo-poo hand, okay? And Jesus, now watch, watch Jesus' language here. Watch his language. It do, if someone slaps you on the right cheek. Well, hang on. If I'm going to slap you on your right cheek, what hand must I use? The left, the left hand. In other words, if someone declares that you're less than them, turn the other cheek. In other words, don't be aggressive back, but only present the side of you that forces them to address you as an equal, and they will not do it. What does peacemaking look like? Peacemaking looks like when you nonviolently draw boundaries that says, I'm not going to let you address me as less than you. We are going to be equals here. Turn the other cheek. This is genius stuff from a first century rabbi talking to Galilean class eight people. Um, the second one he says is, 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 if anyone, this is verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now to understand this, we've got to understand Deuteronomy law. So in Deuteronomy, if someone sued you and you can't pay, then you could give them your tunic as a promise. Jesus says, if you can't pay, then give them your cloak as well. This was happening all the time in Galilee. They were under 87% taxation. 50% of their fish, 30% of their grain, 12.5% to Caesar because the son of God. Roman roads tax plus temple taxes plus the dodginess of the tax collectors themselves. Um, they were losing land that was in their family since the book of Joshua. And what was happening was is the 3% aristocracy, the Roman sympathizers, were, uh, were, were profiting on that. And then they were suing them for things they couldn't pay. Now, in Deuteronomy, if they got sued for things they couldn't pay, they could give their tunic as a pledge. Uh, and so Jesus says, if, someone, if someone's coming to you and, and, and you can't pay and they're willing to take your tunic, just give them your cloak as well. Well, that's weird because there's only two pieces of clothing. Jesus is essentially saying, if they're going to take your, your tunic as a pledge, just get naked. Well, why would he do that? A couple things on that. In Hebrew culture, being naked is not shameful. Seeing nakedness is shameful. So the man being sued is placing shame on the other while being peaceful. Because what kind of person would take both clothes? The, the principle is peacemaking is when you use generosity to expose greed. It, it, this happens if you're at a restaurant and the waiter comes and says, how are we doing the bill? And, and, and one person says, split it up. And the other person simultaneously says, I'll take it. The, the, the generosity of the one person is actually exposing the greed of the other. And what will happen is, is they'll both start fighting over who's going to take the bill, but the one already tipped his cards. He doesn't want to pay the bill. It's that. It's, it's, what's peacemaking? Peacemaking is when you nonviolently demand that people address you as equals. Peacemaking is when you use generosity to expose greed. And here's the next one. He says that if anyone, this is verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The context is loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. The key to this is if anyone forces you to go one mile, which leads to all kinds of questions like who forces people to go a mile? What is that? To understand this, we have to understand first century Roman military law. 
in the Roman, see, Galilee was an occupied territory. It was, uh, it was full of Roman soldiers, and they had 70-pound packs. And here was Roman military law. If a Roman soldier wanted you to carry his pack, if you're class 8 like you are, they can make you go one mile. No trouble. You're going to go next mile, then you're the next, then you're the next. But you could not make them go more than a mile, or you would be court-martialed a day's pay because they wanted these people to go back to work to pay taxes. It was counterproductive, right? So Roman military law said, as a soldier, you can force someone to carry your pack one mile, but you cannot force them to go more than a mile. Jesus says, if somebody comes and forces you to go one mile, just go two. In other words, at the one mile mark, take off running, and you'll have a Roman soldier chasing you down. Get a reputation for being a little bit cray-cray, and they will leave you be. I love that. Go the extra mile. So Jesus says, here's what peacemaking looks like. Peacemaking is turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, giving your tunic and cloak. Uh, one, one other image for Jesus' life I think is very powerful here, and that is to heal the ear. To heal the ear. Uh, th this is uh, a scene from Gethsemane uh, where in the middle of the night, uh, this group of, of soldiers is following the, uh, the, 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 the high priest servant, a guy named Malchus. Uh, Malchus is training to be the next high priest. Um, he's obviously a person of influence. He's not necessarily a slave because, one, he's named, and, two, you have Roman soldiers following him. And uh, he's leading the charge. And uh, something weird happens. Um, uh, Malchus is leading the charge to arrest Jesus, and it says that um, one of Jesus' disciples pick up a knife and, uh, and slices the guy's ear off. Uh, which is unbelievably odd. Like, like, one, is it legal to chop someone's ear off in the first century? Um, why wasn't he arrested for that action? Um, why did the Roman soldiers look at him do that and her, their basic response is, all oh, these crazy Jews? Like, what's, what's going on there? And we know which one of Jesus' disciples did it. Who was it? Who was the disciple that chopped the guy's ear off? Peter. How do you know that? Matthew says it was one of Jesus' disciples. Mark says it was one of Jesus' friends. Luke says it was one of Jesus' followers. John says it was Peter, right? So, so, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are like, let's keep this on the down low, shall we? John's like, nope, let's just throw Peter under the bus. No trouble. Right? So Peter takes out his sword or his knife and he lops the guy's ear off. And it leads to all kinds of questions like, why was that legal? Why wasn't Peter arrested? What's going on here? Now, to understand this, we've got to understand Levitical law. The guy is next in line to be the high priest. And so the problem with that is, is that to be a rabbi, you had to earn it. You had to go to school. You had to be credentialed. There's only three people in the entire New Testament called rabbi. Jesus, Paul, and Gamaliel. That is it. It was very, very special. But to be a priest, all you had to do was be born. Priest was based on lineage. So it was possible to have a righteous priest who gave birth to a wicked priest. And you didn't want a wicked man representing you to the people. So if they deemed you wicked, they didn't want you representing them. What they would do is they would do something that was based out of Leviticus 21. Let me read you Leviticus 21 because this gives the rules for the disqualification of priests. And it gets quite graphic and daunting. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame, 
or one who has a mutilated face. What an odd description. Sir, I'm so sorry your face is mutilated. You can... Because honestly, if you've got a mutilated face, isn't your last concern whether you could be a priest or not? Or a man with a limb too long? You have a bit of a limp. Or, or, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand? Or a hunchback or a dwarf? Or a man with a defect in his sight? Or an itching disease? Or scabs? Or crushed testicles? Which leads to all kinds of questions. Like, honestly, if someone held you down and crushed your testicles, isn't your last concern on earth whether or not you're disqualified for the priesthood? It's like, oh, man, they held me down and smashed my testicles. I can no longer be a priest. Man, no. No, if they hold you down and smash your testicles, your whole thought is, how can I die tomorrow? <laughs> right? My other thought is, is who was the inspector? Right? All right. Mutilated face, check. Hands okay, check. Limbs look all right, check. Not a dwarf, check. Not a hunchback, check. Sir, unfortunately, we have this one more thing we have to inspect. And the guy's like, right? right? Just be a, who lived back then? Anyway, the world's getting better, by the way. Uh, and, and by the way, this is word for word NIV in the Bible. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near. So here's what would happen. If they deemed you wicked, they would give you a blemish. Josephus, Brad Young, um, uh, David De Silva, they talk about this. They, that what they would do is they would, um, they would give you a blemish in your ear. Uh, what's normally described is they would hold you down, they would pierce the ear, and pull. Now, that would hurt. You would get over it. Um, but it would leave you with a, uh, like a forked earlobe, an obvious outside blemish, which to be fair, if you're going to give someone a purposeful blemish, that's the one, right? You don't want them going back to the testicle crushing. You'll take the ear. And so what they would do is they would give you a blemish in your ear. Here's what's happening. The reason it's legal is because of who the man is. He's next in line to be the high priest. Peter is saying, hey, you're fixing to kill the real temple. Therefore, you have no right ministering in the temple made by the hands of men. And I'm going to make sure you never do. And he chops his ear off his head. Now, my Sunday school teacher told me that, that, uh, that, that he was trying to kill the guy and missed. Respectfully, that makes no sense. Because if you're trying to cut someone's head off and you hit them in the ear hole, that's called a direct hit, Right? What more likely happened is he came up from behind him and he just flicked his ear off. What's most important is Jesus' response. Jesus' response was what? He reached down and he put the man's ear back on his head. So Jesus' response to the guy leading the charge to kill him was to not just heal him, but to restore him back to the ministry of the temple. Which leads me to this. As Christians, have we been ear cutters or ear repairers? Because here's the truth. Next week, at this church, 20, 30 people will show up here with their ears in their hands. And someone has told them, you've done things that are too bad for you to be used. You're past the point of no return. 
You can go there, but you'll never have ministry again. Somebody has put their ear off their head. And the church of Jesus Christ, to be like Jesus, we should be ear repairers and never ever ear cutters. We should never participate with online ear cutting. Oh, that guy said something. Let's cut his ear off. Oh, that guy, I disagree with him. Let's chop his ear off. Oh, that guy made a mistake. Let's chop his ear off. That is uncompelling and boring and the opposite of peacemaking, and it promotes hostility. The church of Jesus Christ should be the people figuring out a way to put people's ears back on their head. And I know I speak for the leadership of this church. If you feel in your heart that your ear is in your hand instead of on your head, this place is the place where they will be committed to whatever process is necessary to get your ear back on and get on with it because you've got one life to live. And we are ear repairers here and never ear cutters because that is peacemaking. Mm. So a couple questions. Sermons aren't meant to be agreed with or disagreed with, meant to be wrestled with. Have we received the cross that forgives us while rejecting the cross that ends hostility? Is there any place we've received the cross that gives us mercy, but privately we want justice for other people? You, you can't say, God forgive me, God get them. God forgive me, God get them. That doesn't work. You can't want mercy for yourself and justice for everybody else. It doesn't work. Where have we embraced the cross that forgives us, but we've neglected the cross that commands us to put people's ears on? Let's say it this way. Is there any place we're escalating violence right now? Is, is, in your marriage, is there, and only you know, I'm not asking you to confess it, just if you know inside there's a bit of a one-upsmanship going on in conflict, stop. Stop. At the office, at church, your neighbor, stop. 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 If your dog killed the neighbor's chicken, and then he, hints, he sends your dog to kill your things, that, that come on. Like, 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 you know, at some point we gotta, we gotta be intentional about making peace. Uh, where do we need to act first and be a peacemaker? Maybe... Maybe you could write a, a little note to your husband tonight. And do not use the words, I love you. He doesn't care whether you love him. He cares whether you believe in him. And just say, look, let's put this past us. I just want you to know I believe in you. I wouldn't rather be with anybody else. Maybe you, can, maybe you could write a little note to your wife tonight. And don't tell her you believe in her. She doesn't care. She wants to know if you love her. Maybe you, can, maybe you could do it that way. Maybe there's something you could do at the work tomorrow. Nothing makes Jesus more compelling than a group of people whose basic disposition is peace between us. Even though I could decimate you in an argument, I'm not gonna. Because Jesus should be glorified more than I need to be right. Whose ear do we need to repair? Let's be honest about it. Is there anybody who's we've taken their ear off and it's high time we put it back on? I was meeting with somebody the other day who the church took his ear off because he made a mistake. And this was my conversation with him. I said, it's been three and a half years. If I need to sew a fake ear on your head, 
then I'll do so because I don't want to see your gift go to waste. It is time for you to get up and get back with it. Three and a half years is enough time to pay for something. Ears aren't made to come off, not in the church of Jesus Christ. They're made to be put back on. Jesus repaired the ear of the guy leading the charge to kill him. We, have, we, have, we don't know anybody who's done anything like that. Um, Jesus has given his life for us. What would our offering be back to him? The idea is not that we believe in these things. The idea is that they fundamentally shift the way we see our entire world. I bless you, my brothers and sisters, to be people who don't just believe in the cross, who don't just believe in the resurrection, but be people who allow it to fundamentally shift the way we see all things after that. May you turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, expose greed with generosity, and if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, be intentional about healing people's ears. I bless you to be people who know that your ear has been restored. Until I see you again next year, grace and peace, everybody. God bless.